You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. responding. I appreciate that. Feel free to keep doing that throughout my sermon. (laughs) Uh, Yes, my name is Mackenzie Gomez, or as uh, Reverend Vanita just said, you can call me Pastor Mac now, which is pretty cool. Um, (laughs) uh, Pronouns she, her are fine with me. And I'm just going to start by telling you a little bit of of a story. Uh, I grew up just outside of Los Angeles. And as a result, my community was pretty diverse, kind of like here in the city. Um, But being in LA, it was very Mexican as well. And uh, I was thinking about it, and I didn't really grow up learning or talking about racism in my household. I was raised by two Mexican parents who, their primary goal, whether they really intended it or not, was for our family to assimilate into white American culture. That's what they were taught, so that's what we were taught. And there's a level of privilege in that kind of upbringing that I want to identify. There's a level of privilege in being able to raise your children with a sense of naivety around their skin color or the skin color of others and how society might choose to interact with that skin color. I don't recall racism ever being a discussion in our home until it had to be a discussion in our home. Yeah. So when I was in college, my first job at this retail uh, consignment shop on Newbury Street, which is like the shopping strip in Boston, if you've ever been there. Um, (laughs) And this shop was specifically for reselling designer clothes or designer light clothing, as I would call it. And um, admittedly, I knew nothing about designer clothes at the time. And I know nothing about designer clothes now. Um, (laughs) Fake it till you make it. It was a job, and I was excited. And it was my first week on this job. And I'll never forget this unreal experience that I witnessed, was a part of, very out of body for me. It was uh, closing one night. And it was just me, my white manager, and my black coworker, all women, and we close at 8 at this particular store, and around 7.55, this Latine family was walking by and saw through the glass windows this item of clothing towards the front of our store that they were really interested in, and so they came on in, 7.55, they're excited, they're holding the item, and they're talking to each other in Spanish, trying to decide, oh my gosh, is it going to fit? Who's it going to fit? Should we get it? What should we do? And I'm thinking sweet, we're going to raise our numbers for the night. Like, this is going to be awesome. But my coworker, I guess, had a different internal monologue going. She was exhaling very loudly, repeatedly in their direction, kind of getting a little closer and a little closer. And then she tried to make eye contact with my 
manager uh, to Sharon and I roll, but my manager pretended not to see her. But the family saw. Yeah, they definitely noticed, and they got kind of quiet, and then their body language shifted from excited about the clothing to uncomfortable and, and unsure if they were welcome there. So they very, very politely hung the clothing back up, zipped up the jacket, and put it back on the hanger where it was, and, and they said thank you, and they started to leave. And my coworker followed behind them, like really closely, almost to like hurry them out the door. And as soon as their shoes hit the pavement outside, she slammed the door and locked it really loudly and turned around. And only this glass door is separating her and these people. So I'm sure that the family could hear her. And very loudly, while holding eye contact with me, she said, effing Mexicans, but said the actual word. <laughs> So today, as Angela said at the beginning, we begin our four-week series that's called The Antidote to Racism. <laughs> and we are drawing from the white supremacy culture characteristics and their accompanying antidotes. You've likely seen the image before. I'm thinking it's, yep, it's up on the screen. Thank you, AV team. Uh, you've probably seen this maybe even during a forefront sermon at some point. Uh, and there are so many topics that we could dive into. But we've chosen four, the staff. We chose four characteristics, one for each week of the series to focus on. And today, I'm going to focus on denial and defensiveness, which could each be their own sermon, <laughs> let's be honest. And more specifically, the title of today's topic was listed as, tell me more. How is it racism? Does anyone else get a little or a little cringe when you hear that. <laughs> I know I did. I mean, even when we wrote it, I felt nervous, and then I was assigned it, and I felt even more nervous about it. <laughs> That's okay. We can be a little nervous together. But I invite you to stay, stay with me as we explore it. Let's start by diving into today's scripture. Uh, we're looking at Luke 22, when Peter, previously known as Simon, disowns Jesus. For some context leading up to these verses, Passover was approaching, and Judas made an arrangement for the chief priests and officers to betray Jesus, to arrest him, handing him over when no one's looking. Jesus and his disciples are preparing for what we now know as the Last Supper, and Jesus broke bread to give to them, and then he took the cup, and he tells them, someone at this table is going to betray him. The disciples argue, and they're saying, none of us could ever, oh my gosh, no. And so Jesus interrupts them, Luke twenty two thirty one, and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. In the text, as we have it, Simon Peter doesn't reply. There's more preparation that they talk about as instructed by Jesus. There's prayer. And then Jesus is arrested, thanks to Judas. And Peter follows behind the arrest, but at a distance. We'll continue in verse 
55, Peter disowns Jesus. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. One. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Two. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Three. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So why, if deep in Peter's heart is this love for Jesus, why did he deny knowing or being associated with him once he was asked? I have to wonder, was he afraid? Was he in shock that Jesus' assumptions or predictions were coming true before his very eyes? Was he scared because Jesus was being taken to his death? Was he afraid of what would be done to him if he claimed to be in association with Jesus? One of the antidotes for defensiveness on its white supremacy culture.info, by the way, um, the story continues... Oh, sorry, the antidote for defensiveness is understand the link between defensiveness and fear. Fear of losing power, losing face, losing comfort, losing privilege. And the story continues, and Jesus is crucified. He appears to the disciples three times. Bless you. (laughs) Three times. And the third time, a group of the disciples were out fishing when Jesus appeared um, on the shore. Jesus was telling them how to catch the fish because they weren't doing so great. And uh, when Simon Peter realized that it was Jesus on the shore, he jumped into the water and swam to the shore with the boat following behind him. He grabbed the net to show Jesus the fish that they caught when, when Jesus asked. And John 21 reads to me like Peter is in awe that he has the chance to be in community with Jesus again. It just seems like he's so excited. And while the text, as I read it in the NIV version, Peter doesn't specifically apologize, it seems like Jesus knows that Peter is showing that he's sorry through his actions. So John 21, 15 says, Jesus reinstates Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. It can't be a coincidence that Jesus is 
asking three times if Peter loves him to mirror the three times that Simon denied to know him. And while this story isn't about racism, it does seem to show us this opportunity to repair a hurt relationship. It seems to be an example of love, denial, harm, repair, and then taking what you learned into the community or the world beyond the one that you hurt. Show me you love me by taking care of my lambs. Later on, Peter continued to show his love and learnings by preaching the good news of Jesus. But in the very beginning, if you recall, Peter denied his ability to ever cause that kind of hurt. He couldn't fathom it. He loves Jesus. He couldn't cause that hurt. But then when he discovered that he actually can, and Jesus builds this church around this example of someone who can cause hurt, someone who is human, and made a human mistake of split judgment. Jesus knew and verbally predicted that Peter would betray him, but he chose to love him anyway. And Peter was then given this opportunity to learn and to grow. So that night in um, the consignment shop in Boston, it was quite the social experiment, uh, experiment for me. After my coworker said effing Mexicans, um, we all just continued business as usual. It was really weird. I didn't get emotional. I didn't defend myself. I, I didn't ask her to explain what, what she meant by that phrase. I, I didn't say anything. And my white manager didn't either. We just counted the cash drawer and left. And I remember I called my brother the next day. I called my mom. I called my dad. I called literally anybody that I could think of um, in my family who, who could talk through this with me and find out what their takes on it would be, find out if they'd ever had ever experienced something like this before. And I ended up uncovering this generational denial and defensiveness that permeated beneath the surface of my upbringing this tension and racism between the black community and the Mexican community. This tension that I, I either knew nothing about or honestly was probably in denial about. Oh, my family's not racist. But upon further reflection, after all those calls, I started to remember all of these little moments throughout my childhood and my teen years that were questionable, that we're probably a little bit racist, let's be honest. <laughs> One of them that I can remember is um, my high school boyfriend was black, and I remember getting our formal pictures back, and without skipping a beat in a very neutral tone, my mom said, maybe don't show that one to your grandma. And <laughs> I remember being really confused, and I'm pretty sure I even said, why, because he's black? Joking, like literally joking. And my mom was like, super defensive. Mackenzie, no. Change the subject. Doesn't explain further. I showed my grandma, by the way. <laughs> she just said something like, oh, honey. <laughs> Classic grandma. So fast forward to 2020, I uh, spent four months living 
at my parents' house at the start of the pandemic, and it gave me ample opportunity to discuss things like Black Lives Matter and protests and just racism in general, which again was never a topic in our household growing up. And if you don't know, my parents are pretty conservative, mostly my dad. My mom's come a long way, but it's still not really a topic in our household. And in the beginning of those four months that I was staying there, I would try and open up a dialogue with my mom about these topics, and she would immediately just get a little defensive, and I'm not racist, oh my God, Mackenzie. Just very like nervous that because I want to talk about racism, I must be accusing you. Ibram X. Kendi's definition of a racist idea is uh, any idea that suggests one racial group is inferior or superior to another racial group in any way. And it makes me think, everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. <laughs> Avenue Q? Doesn't mean we go around committing hate crimes. Okay, so anyways, musical theater major, okay? You gotta, gotta throw it in. Um, but I, I really do sometimes sing that to my parents, just to break the tension and be like, so like, let's really talk about it now, please. Jumping back to the story um, at the consignment shop in Boston, before my next shift after this event happened, my manager asked me to meet her for lunch, and it was a very fancy restaurant that she treated me to. I mean, many things were fancy to a struggling college student, but... Um, <laughs> I even think it was a Mexican restaurant, honestly, like, yikes. Uh, complete with margaritas aplenty. I was 21. And <laughs> she asked me how I was feeling, and then she asked if I was planning to take action in any way, covering her butt. <laughs> she said that she spoke to the HR department, and apparently this wasn't the first time that this particular coworker had made very blatant discriminatory remarks about people that look like me. But it was the first time in front of a Latina coworker, so action was taken. The woman was let go. Coming out of the anti-racism training that we did last weekend, a few friends and I were debriefing, and they were telling me a story about um, how they witnessed one person of color discriminating against another person of color of a different race, and, and when they were talking about it, they're like, what do you call that? You call it racism. <laughs> it's, it's still racism. Whether we like to admit it or not, it is very, very possible to be racist and be a person of color. It is very, very possible to have internalized racism towards your own race as well. And honestly, probably be in denial about it. Be defensive when you hear me say that. I know it because I live it too. White supremacy culture affects us all. And there are so many layers and examples of racism where white folks aren't the only problem that I wish I had time to touch on further. I, I, I think about the anti-Semitism that is running rampant right now. I, I think of the Asian American Pacific Islander discrimination. I, there's so much more. And I can't talk about it all today, but we do have a small group opening up that is virtual. Uh, to continue the discussions that we had during the anti-racism training uh, and to take it further. And even if you didn't attend, please sign up. If you wanna have these conversations, sign up. It'll be virtual so those online can also tune in. 
But in all of these examples, these antidotes apply. Another antidote for defensiveness from the website, when someone responds defensively, ask them to talk through what they're defending or defending against. You might find some rich information that way. This one makes me think of the conversations with my mom in 2020. What started off as defensiveness eventually turned into putting words to what she was even actually defending in the first place and why. Talking about how she was raised, things she never questioned. Another antidote for defensiveness is know that resentment is a form of defensiveness and signals that the person feeling the resentment maybe feels unseen or unheard or afraid of losing power. This one makes me think of my coworker in Boston. I didn't get a chance to know her on a deeper level. I worked with her for a few days before she was fired. And <laughs> I really do wish that I did know more about where she was coming from. What was she taught growing up about people that looked like me? What about me joining the team threatened her, her position or her power or her relationships? I, I don't know. I wish I could have asked her to tell me more. The scripture that we looked out at today are, are two of the Gospels telling parts of one story in different ways. And I was thinking about how John is the Gospel of love and Luke is often referred to as this academic. And thinking about that made me think about the Courageous Conversations Compass. Uh, during the anti-racism training last weekend, one of the trainers introduced this to us. And... <laughs> Diana, my lovely girlfriend, and I had a synchronized light bulb moment. <laughs> we heard this and we looked at each other. And you see, in most things, but specifically in the face of injustice, I respond very emotionally. If you know me, you know. <laughs> and that is always where on the compass I fall. I'm always worried about or leading with my heart and, and have concern for how everyone's feeling about what was said or what's going on. Whereas Diana leans predominantly toward action, not emotion. She wants to be practical and hands-on immediately whenever possible. And then we overlap at the moral point. Having conversations about racism is never easy, but especially when different personality types with different histories are thrown together, tensions can rise, and I just want to offer that using a tool like the Courageous Conversations Compass can be really helpful in understanding our neighbor and having our neighbor understand us. And as we continue this series for the next four weeks, I encourage you, well, one, to either attend or tune in online to each of them and to check in with the compass. Check in with yourself. Each week's, each week's topic might stir up different emotions within you, and I invite you to name them. Write them down. Try to identify where they might be coming from. And ask yourself which direction on the compass you most naturally gravitate towards and which direction of the compass each sermon might be challenging you to explore further. Another conversation that I had with some folks after the anti-racism training was around the topic of white tears. You see, at the very end of the training, we stood in a circle, and the people of color were asked to share one word or a phrase that we wanted our white siblings to hear. Someone said, no more white tears, and I quickly responded, no more white tears in my presence. And I'm sure there was a 
a tone of defensiveness when I said it. But as I clarified to my friends later that evening, and I want to clarify here as well, for me, white tears, it doesn't mean that a white person shouldn't ever cry or show emotion. I really, really don't mean that at all. God, I would hope that you would feel some kind of emotion if someone calls you racist or says, I know you didn't mean it, but this felt like a microaggression to me. I hope you have emotion about that, but no more white tears means don't expect the person of color that is calling you in to then help you process those emotions. That's not the emotional labor that, that we need, right? There's a difference. Tears aren't the problem in and of themselves. I mean, tears were a major part of Peter's repentance. The tears are what I like to think of as leading him to action. <laughs> Let your tears lead you to action. Another antidote for denial uh, that is specifically for white people, it says, avoid taking accusations of racism or collusion in racism personally. Avoid defending yourself. Learn to say, tell me more. Understand your racism as conditioning, not as who you essentially are. Understand that awareness of your conditioning is necessary if we are going to ever change and grow. Saying, tell me more, gives you a chance to listen and breathe and take a beat to actively fight against any of that instinct to defend that might be bubbling up and helps you lean deeper into how to show this person in front of you love moving forward. Jesus was teaching that every human is capable of causing harm, even if in your heart you didn't want to. <laughs> that wasn't your intention. Intent versus impact, another big topic when we talk about racism. The impact still matters greatly, regardless of what you intended. And I think it's safe to assume that within our congregation, no one really wants to harm each other. I, gosh, I hope you don't come in here hoping to harm someone. But... I want you to think about any situation that you're in where you might be more honest and vulnerable in a smaller, comfortable circle of your friends, but the second you're on the street witnessing that very example of racism, you're quiet. You choose to say, stay safe and stay comfortable. Choosing vulnerability, even though it's scary, it is vital to the mission. Choosing comfort and only comfort ain't gonna cut it. <laughs> And another antidote for denial is learn to admit when you are wrong. Understand that vulnerability can be a strength, particularly if you're sitting in a position of power and privilege. Understand that not everyone can afford to be vulnerable in the same way. Seeing the humanity in each person, both the one who caused the hurt and the one who has been hurt, they're both human. And in order for our community to continue to grow and heal, we have to see that. As Jesus said to Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I hear that as, when you know better, do better. The last antidote for denial that I want to leave you with is, Call yourself and others in, not out. We will not grow the movement through shame and blame, even though shame and blame are necessary elements of our own individual and personal development. 
We will grow the movement by holding each other accountable from a position of care, kindness, and love. Jesus shows this so clearly when dealing with Peter's betrayal. I mean, of course, Jesus is the prime example of holding others accountable from a position of love. So then I ask you, when someone is calling you in, what's your instinct? Do you tend to want to be right or be in right relationship? The trainers last weekend asked us that, and it has not left my head since. I hope that we can all lean towards right relationship more and more by challenging ourselves to operate from that position of care and kindness and love, both for our neighbor, but also for ourselves. Because, as Cynthia Brown says, we must never throw anyone away, and that includes ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to learn and grow and do better next time. Thank you for sending us Jesus to show us the example of what it means to be a good neighbor, to forgive, and to expect more next time. Thank you that we have the opportunity as a church community to have these conversations and to continue to grow together. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.